Yeah, we, we need to we need to have like a cool intro. We gotta step our game up in that department for sure. But welcome everybody to Spark Sessions. We are live uh, with my former law school classmate, actually Miles Taylor, and we are going to talk about litigation in the cannabis industry in terms of litigation trends, as well as um, how to avoid it and what to do. You know, if you find yourself in a lawsuit. My name is Ryan Pocott. I am general counsel for IKNK Brands. I'll let my co-host yourself. And I'm Joe Devlin, recovering regulator, uh, and welcome to Spark Sessions, everyone, where we take a minute to talk about policy and the law and regulations and uh, a whole lot of other topics circling around and within the cannabis space. So welcome, and thanks for being on, Miles. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. You want to give us the 411 miles and just introduce yourself and kind of tell us how you ended up, you know, working in with cannabis clients. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I'm Miles Taylor. I'm an attorney and partner at Parker Law Group in Sacramento. Um, I primarily handle business litigation and other civil litigation across California, um, dealing with uh, commercial disputes, contract issues, contracts, um, partnerships and corporate things, real estate, trade secrets, all that stuff. Um, and I also act as outside general counsel, assisting a number of businesses um, from formation, you know, to acquisition or other exit points, dealing with the corporate issues, leasing, um, trademarks, some employment things, things like that. Um, and I got into representing some cannabis clients. I had a client that I was helping with a non-cannabis related business. Um, and he had previously been working in the space and was looking to go back into it, which was really what first opened me up into working in the area. And then I th think it was really after um, Prop 64 went into effect in 2018 that there started to be a lot more calls from people looking to either start businesses, try to take advantage of that early time period where people were trying to get the initial provisional, temporary and provisional licenses, and also to convert the um, existing nonprofits that a lot of people were running mm -hmm. under the old laws. They wanted to convert them into for-profit and start running you know, under the expanded scope of what they could do under the laws. Um, so I started encountering people with that. And then really the disputes, I think, have started more recently as far as litigation um, it's continuing to be a topic that's growing, and um, as I think the industry as the industry gets more and more um, legitimized to a degree, and at people start really recognizing, you know, what's affecting them and what's available to them as far as courts go and arbitrations and things, um, it's just going to continue to expand. <laughs> so what? you know, in your own personal practice and just, I guess, across the board with colleagues and whatnot, what's the, what's the most common dispute, you know, that you've come across? Um, you know, I think the, the, the most often dispute that I see, and this might just be a product of what we do um, and the kind of cases that we end up taking is uh, fights amongst partners um, for people that start businesses and they don't, um, organize them uh, sufficiently upfront. They don't think about if something goes wrong, how they're going to handle that. Um, and and then the other one is is fights, 
usually amongst other companies involving contract issues um, about terminating the agreements and about what people were obligated to do under those agreements. Um, all the legal uh, jargon that nobody wants to read except for uh, probably the three of us. And uh, <laughs> I don't know the all of those so, things start coming up. <laughs> so in the corporate docs one, I thought you were gonna, I thought you were gonna say the most common was uh, that guy didn't pay me money, but um, you followed up with the contract dispute, which I'm sure probably starts to touch on yeah. that. But on the on on the company um, uh, maybe kind of partnership disputes uh, is is that really is that more centered around um, you, like the the organizational documents that they were uh, insufficiently drafted or is it about valuations around perceived and actual people having different ideas around what that is or is it maybe more mechanical of like okay I'm leaving how do I how does this person get bought out? Those really good distinctions you're making there, and I'd say all of them, and then also just adherence to the agreements. So, you, you know, there's defaults in the law about when you're starting a business with somebody. Um, if you don't, if you start a corporation and you don't organize it properly, there are still laws that apply to you, even though you didn't, you know, prepare your bylaws or sign a buy-sell agreement or, you know, follow up on resolutions that you need to handle. Um, there are still laws that are affecting that. Um, it, it becomes trickier though, because you, you're, you're in a, in a more of an open field at that point. Um, I think a lot of the, the things that you're doing when you're organizing is that you're trying to both chart the path that it could go and then also predetermine how everybody's going to handle themselves and how they're going to handle themselves, including in, uh, contingencies that can come up. So yeah, like if um, I had one dispute that involved a uh, three three partners that were in an entity and they were working in it for a while and they, they basically just all threw up their hands and decided to not go. They had one guy who was the primary um, uh, cultivator. He knew all the technical in and out. There was one guy who was really more of the um, the uh, finance point, but also was a, a farmer. Um, and then there was one guy who was really more on the business side. Uh, and, and I actually see that, that blend a lot. And um, that's usually the, the, one of the stronger kind of groups of when people are starting, um, businesses in general, but cannabis businesses in particular is that you've got the technical side, you've got the capital and you also have the business mindset. Um, but I was representing one group and the three of them, um, just the relationship broke down. And we went back to the documents that they had prepared um, and a lot of things weren't signed. <laughs> and uh, there were a lot of promises and expectations that everybody brought, but uh, they weren't carried out and they weren't followed through. So it became a process of trying to look back and unravel, okay, well, not only where did this come from, because it came from all sorts of things. You're dealing with personal dynamics, you're dealing with business issues that came up, you're dealing with all sorts of problems that happened but you're really trying to look at, um, is, there, is there a point in there where somebody didn't just make a normal, ordinary course of business mistake, but did somebody actually violate an agreement or violate a fiduciary duty or something like that? Um, so you take a look at all that, um, but then, and, and I'm kind of going off on a little bit from your question, but um, having to, 
to navigate walking those people away from each other. So what do you do with the existing business? How are we going to divide up the assets that are there? Are we going to dissolve the business? Is it going to get sold to somebody? All those kind of things come up. But, but I think your question was more of a, where does it come from? And I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a mixture. I mean, you could have the most perfectly drafted documents that every lawyer you go to, you know, uh, attorneys are always going to focus on different things but you could take it to a parade of lawyers and they could all give you the thumbs up and there's still gonna be some issues that nobody thought about that could still come up. And those still those issues could be either not have been dealt with properly because you don't have a way to deal with it or there's some ambiguity that nobody was able to think of um, because the facts are so different from time to time. You know, it, there's so many factors that can come in. But the question is, is how wide are you fighting? Are you fighting in an extremely wide field where people can make really wide arguments and they can make really broad arguments? Or are you really super narrow on what the issue is? Because if you're narrow, it, it, it starts to, um, it, it, it narrows the playing field, which means there's less risk calculation that you're engaging in and there's risk, less unknowns. Um, and so it, it, it the idea of getting the documents done properly ahead of time is just cutting off all these potential arguments that could be made. So you might still be left with things. You might still be in a dispute that takes a long time <laughs> and everybody hates each other and, and the lawyers say a lot of nasty things. Um, but by doing, by getting it documented right up front, you're, you're reducing the likelihood of that. We actually, we had a comment from uh, none other than Martino, who's also, a Section B member at McGeorge School of Law with us. And he, he made the point that he represented someone whose business went over because of a, a, a partner, inter-partner fight is how he uh, referred to it. And I think that kind of underscores the importance of this kind of stuff. Um, Absolutely. But I mean, I guess just like practically speaking, where do you start? Let's say I want to start a cannabis business with two other people. I mean, where do you start? Um, when you, you know, make the decision you want to open up a business? Yeah, um, I, I think that you have to start with identifying what each person is bringing to the table, what the expectations of each person are, what, like, what they're expected to bring into the business, um, and how you're going to, to some degree, measure that. And a lot of that isn't actually legal. A lot of that is something that you would do yourselves. You would do you know, you could do it in consultation with an attorney, but it's really about understanding what you're doing. Um, it, it, you know, that some businesses get the, suffer from the analysis paralysis where they are so into planning that execution doesn't happen or execution is, uh, it doesn't, it, it, the planning is just takes over and there's no action and that's bad. The flip side is that there are businesses that just start executing immediately. And while that can get your ball rolling, you don't necessarily know it's going in the right direction, uh, which is also bad. Um, so I think to actually to get started, it's identify who you're going in business with, understand what a co-owner is, because somebody who owns equity in your business, that's a that should be a very big decision, because um, there's a lot of uh, rights and uh, obligations that come into that when you own equity with somebody. Um, so really understanding what all that is and what they're providing. Um, and, and with that on the table, then start to, to go into and say, okay, well, 
what's the structure going to be and how are we going to, in the case of cannabis, are we going to find a, you know, are we, what route are we going? Are we going cultivation? Are we going distribution? Are we going retail? Do we have a space that is going to, that we've identified that can accommodate this? How are we going to deal with licensing? All that kind of stuff. But coming off of a, a, a groundwork of the people that are the owners, the ones who at the end of the day are, are, are on the cap table and are the ones that are um, subject to the uh, fiduciary obligations to each other as presumably owner operators or um, depending on your, your form of organization, um, making sure that those people, you really understand what you're getting into. Because I think the, 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 when somebody owns a business, it's just an asset. I mean, it's like I own stock in, you know, Tesla or GE. Um, that's really what stock ownership is. That's what being an owner is. Uh, unless you you do something more. Because there's nothing that starts, let's say you go into business with somebody and you don't have any agreements or understanding about what you're going to be providing. Okay, you initially capitalize the business. You guys got to have some money to have the business start running, right? To, to pay the first bill. Um, so we each put in $1,000. Well, I might just say, all right, I'm going to sign my agreements and now I'm going to go take a nap for five years. Um, you know, there's complicated and difficult ways to try to deal with that uh, as far as the person who's doing all the work. But realistically, it's just an asset. Um, you know, you, you and you're, you're going to get into a fight with somebody over that. But if you've tied the ownership to certain contributions to the company, you've, you, you've dealt with that situation of either somebody feeling undervalued or... Um, or uh, wanting to walk away, or not providing what the other person thinks they should do, um, you start to deal with that. So you can do a vesting schedule. You can do a um, a contingency on ownership where you have to be providing a certain thing to the company, like contingent with an employment agreement. Um, th there's there's different routes to address it, but you really want to think about that too. Is if somebody's an owner, are they just going to be an owner, or are you expecting them to do something in the business? Because so many fail. So many fail because two people, three people, however many go into business and they expect the other person is going to be as dedicated and hardworking as they are. They then reflect on it not too long into it and go, well, wait a second, we're not even. This is the, and how are we going to deal with this? Um, and it's even worse if those things go on for years and years and there's this unseated. Um, there's a reason why we call them business divorces. <laughs> <laughs> it's because they very strongly mirror what goes on in a in a you know a, a marriage dissolution when you have a company dissolution like that. <laughs> I once had a, a friend of mine who was an attorney describe um, <clears throat> criminal court as bad people on their best behavior and family court as good people on their worst behavior. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, uh, that's just so, yeah, I mean, I guess that is got to be such a lesson that so many people have learned and once they start a business of like, you know, I'm going to put my blood, sweat and tears into this and you get, you know, a year or two down the road and, you know, one person has written a check and the other parties have written a check and also put in all this labor to grow the business and, you know, how is everybody equal, right, right at, 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 at that, so. And it, it <sighs> you know, it doesn't take a ton. I mean, this is where a, a lot of when I get involved, either if I get involved as a litigator, as somebody who, hey, a dispute's being presented to me and I need to 
represent somebody's interests in that dispute. Um, it, it, it's a it's a spectrum of what we're facing, as in uh, it could be an extremely well-documented case where there's tons and tons of documentation, there's lots of witnesses, there's a lot of meat to go through to try to, you know, prove up whatever claims you're asserting or, or, or defending against. Um, and then there's the other side, which is there's basically nothing. There's a, a napkin and we went to the bar one time and said, let's be partners, right? There's, there's that as well, which they both have their issues, but realistically, it, you don't have to have the, um, you know, thoroughly drafted, thoroughly vetted um, documentation from an attorney to get you at least baby steps into um, avoiding a problem. Uh, you know, it, 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 if you have a series of emails where your agreement is contained in emails, that's good. If you have a, uh, you know, a perfectly or a well-drafted, uh, you know, uh, well-vetted contract that both sides have provided their input on and both thoroughly understand the terms, that's much better. But it's not like you don't have something just because you sent an email to each other about what the agreement was going to be. Um, that's a writing. That's sufficient. Um, it's not the best. If I was advising somebody before they came to me with their dispute, I would say, don't rely on that. <laughs> Do something more. But if that's all you have, it's still enough. But it all becomes a question of, of you know, how much you're able to actually capture um, whatever is the agreement is or, or, or what have you. So it, layers is better. Is there a, is there a, in your opinion, has, has a business structure emerged that is um, uh, best for the cannabis industry? Is it, a, you know, a C corp or is it a, you know, an LLC? Is it a, an S corp? I mean, has, sure. has there been kind of consensus amongst, amongst folks that you've seen as like what that ideal structure is? Or, I don't or, know is about it, it. or does it really matter? And it really depends on like the type of, of, of the business. Truthfully, I think it's way overemphasized as a concern because most of the, most of the, the differences between the, the, the structures, um, a lot of it's going to end up being related to tax issues, realistically. Um, formality and tax issues are two of the biggest items. Um, I'm not a tax attorney, but I know enough to at least point out where the problems are. And uh, I don't know if you guys have talked about this on the podcast before, but tax issues in cannabis businesses is just a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that is one of the points. So looking at it from, from a, a functional side, um, I tend to like and uh, prefer one, prefer a structure that I think is actually going to get followed. So the strictest um, version, in my opinion, one of the more stricter sides would be if you had a, a corporation uh, under the general corporate laws um, uh, taxed as a subchapter C corporation. And to back up a little bit, just to distinguish. So this is something that people get wrong a lot, but it, uh, it, it's really not clear. Nobody, people don't make this very clear. There's a difference between the state law and how your how your entity is structured from the state, like how it's chartered by the state to, to allow to exist, 
as an organization and how it's treated by the IRS for tax purposes. So the states all have their own versions of some kind of corporations code, which is going to outline, hey, we've got corporations, we've got partnerships. Uh, you know, in the, I believe it was in the 80s, the LLC was created and everybody adopted some version of the um, Uniform LLC Act. Um, so the state law says that. There are statutes that lay out, hey, you can be a corporation. Here's what you do. Here's what you're governed by. You can be an LLC. Here's what you do. Here's what you're governed by. Um, the IRS, and for tax purposes, can be totally different. So that's where the subchapter C and subchapter S for corporations come from. But it's fascinating because in, in situations where, uh, where you deal like an LLC, for example, um, some businesses, uh, particularly not cannabis, but some businesses, the default in an LLC is to be under the same tax code as a partnership. But you can elect to be an S-corp, even though you're an LLC. So from a state law corporate perspective, you're an, S, you're an LLC. You're governed under that for how you operate. But from a tax perspective with the IRS, you're an S-corp. So it's, it's, there's a distinction on that one. So looking at it purely from the types of entities under state law, um, the two that I think is most important in California for new businesses is going to be either a statutory closed corp, that's what they call it, or an LLC. Uh, a closed corp is basically, hey, we're going to take a corporation structure and we're going to strip away a lot of the formalities. So normally you have to have an annual meeting. Normally you have to elect directors for this period. You have to be very official in keeping your minutes. The closed corp has certain requirements, has to have under 35 shareholders. Um, I believe you can't have a, a foreign uh, shareholder. There's sorts of you know, requ requirements in there. Not super hard to meet for a new company. But the closed corp is like, hey, let's strip away a lot of the formalities of that. We'll use the corporate structure where there's shareholders, directors, officers, but we're gonna strip away a lot of the formalities because otherwise, technically, you could ding each other in that company for not following your corporate formalities. You know, one of the reasons you create a corporation is to remove liability from yourself. If I own a corporation and the corporation's in front of me, it's like the castle wall around me so that when somebody comes trying to get me to pay, th there's a wall between it. That's the limited liability concept. Um, if you aren't following your internal structures or what the law requires you to do internally, that's one of the things they look at and saying whether or not they can break that wall and make you personally liable for the debts of the company. So the closed corp is nice because it says, hey, we're going to just remove a lot of those formalities. So you don't get dinged later if you don't follow them. That's very valuable because people don't follow these. <laughs> like <laughs> it's, we, we, uh, when when businesses get to a certain level and that starts to become a requirement, whether it's because of a bank or like a lender or because of an investor or because of some regulatory requirement, people then you start getting very strict in, in corporate governments and compliance. But when you're a startup, when you're a new business, I mean, you don't have the time and resources necessarily to put into all that. So you want to do it as best you can with what you have. And what I like about LLCs and I like about the closed corp is that both of them allow you to to structure it quite broadly. I mean, you can, you can write the way that your operating agreement or your bylaws are so that you aren't imposing a bunch of requirements on yourself. Because if it's two people or three people, they're the three owners, they're the three directors, they're the president, CFO, and secretary. You know, wh why do we care that much about whether they were acting as a director versus they were acting as an officer 
it's the same three people, right? Right. Um, you, you and so you can write your documents to reflect, you know, a basically a leniency on yourself. Um, some structures don't allow that, and um, and ultimately, it's you know, it can it can become an issue. It isn't always an issue, but it can become an issue. And it's like if you if you can just check a different box and call yourself, let's say, an LLC um, instead of a corporation and avoid that problem, you might as well do it. Yeah. Are you That's able not to, to say, though, of, of taxes again, like tax considerations are a whole nother thing. And, you know, some investors won't touch companies that are structured as LLCs. Some people won't touch S corps. Some people uh, require them to be a certain way. You know, those are all other considerations, tax considerations. But from like a straight, hey, I'm an operator in a business and what am I doing and, and, and how do I get the most out of it? I tend to prefer the LLC or the closed corp just because I see people can actually functionally follow them. Right. Are you able to convert miles like from an LLC to a C corp or a closed corp to a C corp? If things, if you start off as a startup and you want to start with an LLC, are you convert? Um, yeah, you you can, and it's a process that involves. Uh, I'm trying to think of the one, the big one that usually people end up with, and I, again, I I don't think it's really going to apply here, but is sometimes people start companies under subchapter S tax status, and then they later want to convert to subchapter C. And subchapter C, just for for the the background, is the double taxation people talk about in a corporation, where it's taxed as corporate income, and then if you want to distribute money out to the owners, you're going to get hit with a a you know the dividend is going to be taxed separately to the owners, as opposed to a subchapter S or a, a, a partnership taxation, which is flow through. It's all just going to flow through into the owners' tax returns. Um, there is a process to do it, and candidly, I, I don't. I haven't actually worked on one of those transfers before, from an LLC to a corporation. Um, the way that I generally would see it done is there's a process where you can, if you were, if you were an uh, an S corp, there's the uh, something called a Q sub that can be done if you're trying to deal with a higher level. Anyway, it gets more into tax planning. Um, primarily, it what you could do if you were trying to achieve, sorry, I'm, I'm walking all over myself, but, but it, if what you were trying to achieve was more formality, that what's the nice about the LLC, for example, is you could just write that in. Um, you can also always create a holding company and deal with it that way. But it depends on what you're doing. Are you trying to become a publicly listed company? Because there's a lot more considerations than just the day-to-day -day operations you have to deal with. Um, are you trying to, are you going to be acquired? At that point, you might actually benefit from just doing an asset purchase as opposed to a, um, if it's an LLC, a membership purchase, or uh, if it's a corporation, a stock purchase. You might just be better off doing an asset purchase. So it really, de it really depends on what you're trying to go for if you're looking at whether you need to do it. But I haven't actually dealt with um, converting from an LLC to a corporation before. Well, and this, you know, everything you just went through over the last five to 10 minutes is just collectively why I've always taken the position that you need, or at least, I mean, everybody has different resources when they're starting out. And I recognize that, but you know, if there's like a hierarchy of, of issues that you need to devote resources to, I, I think 
entity formation should be you know, close to the top of the list, if not at the top of the list, because I mean, tell us about the difference between entering um, into you know a relationship with a client who is looking to have you form an entity and you get the the benefit of working with them at the up the forefront as opposed to someone who's coming in and asking you um, to fix you know what has gone wrong within a partnership didn't you know properly documented and just logistically i'd like you to talk about it even from like a cost cost perspective mm -hmm. i'm curious to hear your your you know position on that yeah absolutely so uh when you know it, it's almost the, the documentation itself is not the big um expense or the big issue it's more about thinking it through and thinking through what it is you're trying to do and also thinking through what the at the end of the day what you're trying to do so i i might i'm going to go off on this a little bit and then want to come back into your question more but the the thinking about what the goal of your business is um a lot of people think about i want to be running a business i want to have it running i want to be making money off of it that's fine that's good but you're going to get to a point if you're successful where you go, what's next? Am I trying to be acquired by somebody? Am I trying to take over the world? Am I trying to be you know, publicly listed? Or what am I trying to do with the company? Um, if you know ahead of time or you've thought about the direction that you're trying to go when you start out, it's gonna help you along the way. It's gonna help you not get caught down where, hey, I have to actually turn around, come back up the street and then go down the other street again. I think that's an important piece as far as when you're when somebody's coming to me to get structured. Usually, people have in mind um, they usually have in mind, generally speaking, what they want to do. But it's very important to think all the way through to the end there. So, as far as like getting into it, whether somebody's coming to me who already has it running versus um, versus formation, um, it. Part of it is is what I was saying earlier about the laying out what the possibilities are, about what the exits are, and about what happens, um, and thinking really as the negative pessimist that lawyers often have to be, which is everything in the world is going to go wrong. Definitely, you're going to get hit by an asteroid. Absolutely, the dollar is going to collapse. So, what are we going to do in those situations? Well, maybe not those, but <laughs> things short of them. We need, we're thinking about, okay, well, that's really great that you're being positive, but somebody needs to think about what if it goes wrong? Because if it goes wrong, it's going to go really wrong, or it's going to go just a little wrong. And we want to be able to put something together that keeps it from getting so deep down and negative that it ends up tanking something. And it instead just becomes a normal blip, you know, like operations in a business, right? Um, you could have where hey, somebody just wrote something wrong on the manifest. Or, hey, you know what, the product just, there was a quality issue, we didn't catch it, that's an error. And if you have systems in place to identify it and address it and fix it, your customer you know, is gonna be okay probably, they'll maybe be a little ticked off, but they'll be okay. Uh, you'll, put the, you'll implement the solution so that that issue may not happen again, or maybe you'll double up on checks or whatever it is, right? You're, because you're planning for it and you're thinking about it. Um, if you don't care and you don't think about it, 
and you just kind of brush it off as something that you don't need to think about it going wrong, that's when more problems happen. That's when more relationships get destroyed. And I think it's just very similar to when you're structuring your own company or you're, you're operating in your own company. It's the same kind of considerations that you need to make. But a point that you brought up as far as cost goes is huge. Um, to structure something and spend the time and the money to do, whether it's forming a company or um, creating a contract or um, handling your IP or whatever it is, um, the cost up front will pay dividends because of the issues that you're gonna avoid down the road. I mean, if somebody comes to me and has me spend a couple hours helping with a contract issue, I, I it, the, it reduces the likelihood that you're gonna get in a fight later. Doesn't prevent it entirely. There's You never know what's gonna happen, but it reduces it, right? So your risk of issue and your, your breadth of is, issue all go down. Um, if you don't have those, you have more possibilities of issue coming up. And each one of those issues, when you get into litigation, litigation is expensive, litigation takes forever, and there's usually no winner. Um, despite the fact that somebody at the end of the day will either uh, run a case through trial or through court, other court proceedings, and somebody may you know, get a judgment in their favor or may get a dismissal, um, or you may enter into a settlement that's beneficial for you but versus the other. But almost always, we're talking about what happened in the past, and we're trying to mitigate a negative thing from the past, as opposed to building something good in the future. And that all the efforts you're using trying to basically make the bad thing not as bad or to recover for some issue that happened in the past, if you had those resources and you didn't have to devote them to that, because you do, if those issues come up, you have to pay attention to them, you have to deal with them. But if you could take those resources and you could apply them towards growth or towards uh, refining and excellence, um, it's almost always gonna be a better, at least financial decision. Um, right. There's the, the ROI on, on, on litigating something that happened in the past is not always great for that ROI for the future. Yeah. Right. You know, and what's, it's not what's an really hard in building it. Right. And what's really hard too is just because of the uncertainty, right? You never know. You know, people uh, talk about um, this is a bad example, but the, you know, very popular McDonald's hot coffee case where the woman spills the hot coffee and gets up teen billions of dollars, right? The, the facts are actually different than that. And everybody likes to use that, you know, sensationalize it. And it really wasn't as intense as people like to make it out if you go read up on the actual case. But the point being, somebody took a big risk there in letting that case go through trial and let a judgment get entered. You just don't know. The flip side is there's a lot of really meritorious cases where you, you, know, you look at it and you go, I can't see how they could possibly beat you on this. And then you lose, <laughs> you just don't know. There's so much right. uncertainty and that's really where it comes from. It's not that it is impossible, but it's the uncertainty where if I know, hey, look, you know, I'm making X margin on my product and all I need is an infusion of cash to hire more sales and marketing to push it out and I'm gonna make more money off of it. You can feel pretty confident in that. You can't predict it, you don't know, there could be a, I don't know, just a random example, maybe a pandemic. Um, things like that can happen, right? But, and, and maybe there's a competitor or maybe there's a government thing that comes in and tries to stop it. You, you don't know those either, but you have a, a better chance of forecasting that 
because there's more variables in your control than you have when you're, you're in litigation. And so being able to try to avoid that. And of course, everything that I've been talking about too is about trying to reduce those variables. It really all comes down to, to risk calculation and, um, and you know, taking as educated as you can um, steps and informed decisions as you go based on the information you have um, and, and trying to reduce as much risk outside as possible. So you mentioned the, the, the C word contracts a minute ago, and that this is an area that, um, you know, not only continues to, um, uh, you know, just confuse me because I, I, I'm not an attorney and as much as I love the law contracts are just like the, 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 the rabbit's hole down into wonderland for me in so many ways. But I can at least see that within the cannabis space, this is an additionally complicated area because of the regulations at the state level. And we don't have um, a lot of, um, you know, kind of legal or contract history with this. Um, and so I, I got to imagine that, you know, like everything else, like every other, uh, you know, profession, there were attorneys kind of jumping into this space. I mean, have either one of you seen, you know, f folks that are writing contracts in the canvas space that either just shouldn't be or like, you know, kind of like inadequate work product coming out of there? Because again, there's so many rules around who can own this. Are you a brand? Are you a financial interest holder? Do you have to be disclosed? I mean, uh, it, you know, how does that money flow? I mean, th there's so many layers of regulation within the cannabis space that seem to potentially directly uh, uh, impact how a contract should be written in order for it to be legally compliant. Am I am I totally wrong on this one? No, I th I think you're you're on the money with it, and it what. What I find really interesting about the cannabis space is that so much of it is still evolving and is new. Um, there are so many issues that I think in other industries you don't have or that they have figured out a way of dealing with it. Um, you know, industry, like one area that, that came to mind as you were asking that question is, you know, something you look at, for example, when you're interpreting a contract, you look at industry usage of terms. Um, because right. the courts aren't going to just, you know, in the abstract, try to dictate what two private parties are doing. They're going to try to look at what other similarly situated private parties are doing. Um, but we don't necessarily have much on that, or we have, uh, don't have an established, may not have an established way of approaching something. Um, yeah. you know, I look at an industry like, um, like construction where, it is there is so much there's so many contract disputes that go on in construction and have for so long that there is just a, a a plethora of law on handling it there are you know for example uh, in in the disputes there's in construction defect world there are special complex courts that often will handle in in certain courts that'll handle that calendar those types of cases um, and they'll and there's there's norms that have been developed in how those get dealt with, um, and cannabis doesn't have that kind of stuff yet, um, and so it's being developed. But but you add in the regulatory side, which which is almost twofold. One of them is 
you look around the, the industry and you see so many people not following it and it makes you go, wait a second, am I the sucker for trying to do this properly? Miles, and, don't even right? I deal with this. I deal with this <laughs> no, every single day. Yeah, it, you know, <laughs> no, I see, I see it all the time. <laughs> Everybody and, else is yeah. doing it. Don't even get them started. It, <laughs> it's true. It no, but it's true, and and it's it's not just this industry. It's in a lot of industries. People encounter that. They say, well, what are the chances that you know some person's actually going to figure this out, or someone's going to see it, or something like that? Um, but what what's more fascinating to me about cannabis with that issue is that a lot of it is still extremely unknown. Like it's not clear how it's going to be enforced or, or it's continuing to be developed, how certain things are going to be enforced. Um, you know, something else that came to mind, Joe, with your question, I think I lost, totally lost the focus of it, but <laughs> hopefully we can go back to it. But is uh, there was when, when, as a part of Prop 64, I actually don't know if it was a part of Prop 64 or if it came in after. I think it was a part of it. Um, there were, there were, you know, obviously issues of, so like in a contract, you can't have a contract for an illegal purpose. I can't have a contract with you to hire you to go rob a bank for me. You know, you would not be able to enforce that agreement because I'm asking you to go commit a crime. So there was an issue with, okay, well, how do we deal with the the potential illegality? of cannabis, especially at the federal level, when at the state level, it's, it's perfectly permissible. Um, so like in California, they edited part of the civil code to specifically reference, hey, as long as you're following whatever local rules exist or whatever state rules exist, then you can lawfully contract for this kind of thing. However, if that still opens the door to the smallest little misstep where you know a city decides one day eh, i'm going to change our mind about this you know this local control is going to change our mind about how we're handling something now you're out of compliance now the contract falls and the dominoes fall right so one thing to do is to look in those agreements and you want to try to prevent for that because that is a concern um similar to the to the like uh, alcohol space alcohol and tobacco have similar kind of you know intense regulations but they have, I mean, you know, there's tons of rules and regulations about how to handle that. And they fall, they flow down consistently. Well, I mean, I probably talked to an uh, alcohol and licensing attorney and they will tell me that I'm completely wrong on this. But my impression is that they're relatively consistent. Um, and I feel like that just doesn't exist for cannabis. So it's, you're having to navigate and battle against that as well. Well, I, I, Joe, for your question, I think a good analogy because um, Miles is bringing up, you know, laws changing at the local level and, you know, it's, it's critical and you already mentioned it in terms of financial interest disclosures and other regulatory requirements that any attorney that writes a cannabis contract needs to know the regs and to Miles' point also needs to be aware of things that change at both the local and state level. And I think a good analogy you'll appreciate is that it's in an, an attorney knowing the regulations and writing a contract is as important as a regulator who's writing regulations and having knowledge of cannabis in terms of the plan itself and how the market works out. You need to have, it's not enough that you wrote regulations in another area. You need to know cannabis to write those regulations in the same way. If you're writing a cannabis contract, I need to know the local and state regulations at play to really do this the right way. Um, and I, you know, it's kind of the same deal I would say. And you even see it like in California, interestingly, 
California, I believe in the health and safety code, refers to it as cannabis. But as opposed to marijuana, and there's any number of political, you know, historical reasons why people don't like to use the word marijuana. But if you got if you want to get real cute about it, I mean cannabis refers to both hemp and marijuana. They're both varietals of cannabis, right? So, you know, having that base knowledge of definitions within the, the field is equally important to contracts as it is regulations. But big picture, you know, just having that baseline understanding of the industry is critical in the same way, whether you're talking about contracts or you're writing, you know, regulations as far as you, I'm concerned. You reminded me of something, Ryan, because I was working, I, I forget when it, what it was specifically, but I remember working on an agreement um, for a client and it w- we got down to the point of, we just kept saying they kept in in the draft that had been prepared and that I was looking at just talked about like pounds of cannabis, and I was like, "This doesn't work. <laughs> what are we? What are you talking about? What are you actually? What is this transaction on? Is it flour? Is it like dust? What is it? We need to be more specific because this isn't whole plant. I mean, is it whole pl- right? There's so many variables that <laughs> give, can get broken give you down. Hundred pounds of the whole plant. Here you go. Right. <laughs> so you know, there's so many issues that come into that, and it was you know ultimately going and coming up with a definition that worked based on what the the uh, agreement that they were trying to reach was. But that was an issue where I can come up with a hundred scenarios of fight that they could have had if they had just gone with some term that hadn't been vetted and dealt with. And I think that what's going to happen is as in a lot of, in a lot of other industries that are more, I won't say mature, but I would say legally mature, maybe, I don't know what the the right way to say this is that have been, that have been operating and using and enforcing contracts for a while. There's a lot of terminology and, um, and norms that develop. So if you go to the healthcare industry and you start talking about selling medical products, um, you're going to see a lot of the same kind of terminology and terms and expectations um, in those agreements that isn't necessarily that there's a law that says you have to do that, but it's just what everybody does in it. And I think right now there's a lot of fracturing, at least from what I've seen, and I won't profess to say I, I know it all, but from what I've encountered uh, with clients is that there's there's fracturing. There aren't a lot of those norms that have been developed in how people are handling agreements with each other. Um, there isn't uh, there isn't a completely agreed upon set of terminology that's being used. But I think that over time, we're going to start to see that, especially, you know, once we start seeing um, published appellate decisions involving cannabis businesses and fights, and they start using, let's say, flower, and you start seeing the term flower everywhere, everybody is going to use that term, there will be no synonyms that are going to be done because you're gonna wanna tie it back to the interpretation that was done by that court in that case. And that's gonna flow it down. And I think those are the kind of things that are gonna continue to develop over time, which hopefully will provide more consistency. And then of course, the flip side is as regulations continue to be written and released and you get some consistency amongst um, uh, the way that's written, whether it's between local governments or between states or however it's being done, I think more consistency will build up, which will be useful in everybody being able to have more predictability about what's going to happen. Do new areas of law like this kind of eventually find their way into the universal 
commercial code? Is that kind of how, does that, is that, is that possible? Um, probably not with the UCC. So the UCC is a set of basically model uh, statutes that are promulgated. And I forget the organization that, that puts them together. Um, but they're, they're statute and they relate to the sales of goods primarily, um, not industry specific. But I think what you were probably going to end up seeing is um, more industry groups will start to, and, and they may have already, I, I, I don't know this, so I, I could very easily be shown wrong on this, but you'll see more, I think, industry consistency and publications that will then be used as reference points at some point. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, in, in like, there, in, in like the building industry, I can just think of, I know there's, there's a number of publications that get used and they get referenced back to for purposes of certain things like um, supplies and things like that. Um, I could see that over time we're gonna get something and everybody's gonna start to agree hey, you know, this is really the industry group that's going to speak on this and they're going to issue. But I wouldn't see that coming into an amendment of, of the UCC or something similar. Um, but I don't know. It could be that there's, Ryan, you probably would be able to speak to this more, but there could be, um, if, if, especially if federal legality happens, um, states wanting to go, okay, so now we want to adopt something. What are we going to adopt? I don't go, well, we're not going to adopt California. Those guys are crazy. Well, let's look at what somebody reasonable is doing. Like, you know, <laughs> like some, let's look at what Colorado's doing or something. And we'll just take their laws and just plop them in and make some tweaks. But I could see where if you start seeing some more adoption across, for example, different states, you might see that. But I don't know. I, I, to clarify, too, of what I do, I don't focus on regulatory compliance or licensing for clients. I usually have them work with um, an outside attorney or, or a skilled a consultant or something to help with that. Um, I primarily just deal with the business side and the um, the litigation side. So if the if if the industry and the uh, smart, um, well-read uh, regulatory people out there start putting something together for consistency, uh, I don't know if there is something at this point, but it would be useful. No, and there isn't, you know, and this is I you know have dealt with this for our company, you know in the in the international world so you know where i where i can anticipate there being issues and in the is in the context of international supply agreements where you have country a who defines things in one way and then you have country b on the other end of it um defining it in a different way so you know with terms like full spectrum broad spectrum even the use of hemp versus cannabis all this you know, you have each country you'll find, and even each state within the United States uses different terms. So, for example, in California, you see, you see cannabis. On the East Coast, in uh, Massachusetts, they use marijuana. I mean, stuff like that is probably easily reconcilable. But when you're, you're looking at it on the international stage and you have different regulatory uh, distinctions between marijuana and hemp based on THC percentage, that lack of uniformity is inevitably going to breed con uh, conflict. And we actually had a conflict or uh, a comment from Catherine Beerwas, and I apologize if I butchered your last name, but you know she made the point, and I think this is a really good one that hasn't been brought up, 
is that it's not just about disputes amongst partners or disputes amongst and like within a business relationship with a third party. It's also about you need to know your stuff from a regulatory perspective to educate a judge. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, I mean, you walk in the court, I would I would imagine few and far between are you going to find a judge that, you know, is up with all the terminology and the regulatory requirements. And if you don't really know this stuff, you know, they always say the best way to learn something is to teach someone. I, I wouldn't recommend that in the context of presenting to a judge. I mean, you really you need to know your stuff to truly educate um, a judge. And it reminds me, in the criminal context, there's any number of of criminal or uh, creative arguments you can make, you know, in criminal court. But it's under the assumption, though, that you're able to get the message across to a judge. And you have to really know your stuff to effectively, you know, send that message. So I, I thought that was an interesting point from Catherine and a good one for sure. Yeah. Oh, and no, I, I absolutely agree. So, but yeah, I mean, I definitions is the biggie for me from a regulatory perspective, Joe, like within contracts. And we've even talked about it. You know, I think I understand what broad spectrum and full spectrum means, but I'm telling you, I've seen conflicting interpretations of it, you know, on Google and just publications within the cannabis industry. And I know um, there are organizations out there that are trying to develop uniform standards, but I can just tell you, that on a, an operator-to-operator basis, it would not surprise me in the slightest to see disputes when you have a miscommunication between two parties as to what those definitions, um, you know, are supposed to, yeah. supposed to be. Or, or the definitions necessarily don't align with historical industry practices, right? So, I mean, we've we've had discussions around, you know, leaves, quote unquote. Um, Ryan right. and 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 uh, I think the industry has a some folks in the industry maybe a, a good chunk of them have a, a slightly different definition of what leaves are um, than what are um, maybe what is the word for word definition of, of as it's written in in, in, the, in the code right I mean. Um, I think many folks in the industry had the definition of, of leaves as basically shake. Well, it's actually not, right? I mean, if you read it, it's everything, you know, leaves are basically leaves and everything else is, you know, uh, 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 not a leaf and, just, you know, and, and, and shouldn't be taxed accordingly. So, I mean, if it's anything close to a derivative that came from flour, it, it, it is it is flower because mm-hmm. there isn't really there's not a definition of shake everyone refers to like oh that shake that shake that shake <clears throat> but there is no definition of shake within within the cannabis you know within the cannabis codes and so um i think you have people acting on you know what they historically believe is is how that industry is operated and they're maybe not necessarily fully compliant with the law as it's as it's written. Well, and, and think about how this is all shaking out. I mean, inevitably. Nice <laughs> I didn't mean to even do that. It was just came natural. Uh, you know, inevitably, states are going to call their own shots, and they're each going to have their own regulatory structure. So, I mean, you're going to if you're especially if this is, you know, if and when we see interstate commerce open up, if this is an interstate deal. 
it's not only knowing the regulations in your home state, it's knowing the regulations in the other state as well. I mean, that's something to think about. And I also have a moral obligation to go back and defend the McDonald's lady. For anybody that wants to learn anything about that case, if you ever look at the pictures in terms of the severity of the burns, I remember we watched a, a documentary in law school for or something. It's It was gruesome. You know, I, I think people downplay it. Like, oh, the lady just spilled some coffee on her leg. She was she, really burned. She was an older lady, and it was gruesome. If you well, and 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 the issue, if I'm remembering correctly, was that they had been systematically increasing the temperature, knowing the risk and knowing that there were damages on people in the past, but they didn't care because it was saving money, and that was really where the punishing amount of money comes from. Even right. though I think ultimately, and again, I, it's been a while, but I think she ended up getting like a fraction of what she actually got awarded. So oh, really? it wasn't even this, you know, monumental life-changing thing, if I remember correctly. But it's, it's been a few years since I remember looking at that case much. So before we close out, I, I, since we have uh, two outstanding attorneys on here, you mentioned interstate commerce. I saw an article that, uh, uh, full disclosure, I, I pinned it and but have not read it. But the title of the article seemed to imply that there is some opportunity of interstate commerce prior to federal legalization. Uh, any takers on that one? I, it was a bit of a head scratcher, just as a sheer premise. I, you know, it made me want to pull up my copy of the Constitution and start rereading it. So, I mean, at the most base level, the CSA, I mean, the Controlled Substances Act, for those of you who don't know, that's the, you know, the federal law that schedules cannabis as a Schedule One substance and makes it basically illegal under federal law. Um, I would imagine cannabis would need to be rescheduled, if not descheduled, to be, to open the doors to interstate commerce because otherwise you're you're putting a an illegal substance into interstate commerce. That being said, let's not forget the dynamic we, we find ourselves in. We have states legalizing cannabis at the medical and recreational level, left and right, in spite of what the Controlled Substances Act, aka federal law said. So what I have heard proposed, I think like the tri-state area in the Northeast was some type of compact amongst the states to allow for interstate commerce um, amongst those states. But I think that would be in spite of federal law, not sanctioned under federal law in the same way that legalized cannabis programs would. And Catherine said, I would not be willing to take the chance. And I, when we're, I'm with you on that as well, Catherine. I would care. But, um, so my answer, and I don't know if you have different thoughts and miles, is I, I would think it would probably need to be scheduled for that. I, I would agree with that. And I think it's a level of um, almost poking the bear where the justification of why the feds are not doing something within the states that have legalized it gets down to ultimately a concept of state sovereignty, right? It's the idea of, well, it's what's going on within our borders. So, you know, yeah, you you have authority to regulate under a litany of constitutional decisions going back but and you you've you've regulated this congress but okay we're just we're going to turn our cheek and if you start going between states i mean that's specifically 
where <laughs> you start to invoke what the Fed, what the federal government does, which is to talk about uh, regulating commerce between the states. Um, it, it, I, I don't think I'd be able to advise that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we yeah. can kind of wrap up. Miles, where do you, uh, where can people find you? I mean, I'm, I'm glad actually that just so people know, I, I've referred a lot of work to Miles in terms of corporate formation and other, you know, lit business litigation and other corporate matters. Where can people find you um, if they're looking for those services? Sure. Uh, I'm at Parker Law Group. Um, we're located in Sacramento. Um, you can find us by Googling my name, Miles Taylor, Parker Law Group, um, or P-A-R-L-A-W-G-R-O-U-P.com. Um, and we're, uh, and my email is miles at parlawgroup.com. Um, and we, uh, yeah, that's the way to get in touch with me if needed. Awesome. Joe, do you have any final questions? No, thank you so much for, for, for coming on. Always, uh, um, always a pleasure to talk miles and, um, thanks again. Likewise as well. Thank you guys so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Bye everyone. See ya.